Kitafi kono lonuto waisai kulai galikai. Pukatukai lonutofi, solo tuwi waimai tatai, kuwi putukai punuhi kulai, to punuhi kona, tuwi waimai tatai kuwi putukai. Welcome to Conlanger, the podcast about constructed languages and people who create them. I'm George Corley, and over down the street somewhere is William Annis. <laughs> Hello. And we don't have Mike on today. Because um, he's, he's in wedding. New Orleans. <laughs> yes, New Orleans. At a wedding, apparently. So um, it seems like uh, we he wasn't able to swing being on with us today. So uh, it's just me and William. Yes, in the frigid, cold, and cold north. How are you, William? How was your New Year? It was good. It was good. And right after New Year, I went to LA to visit friends, and they're having a little cold snap there, where it's getting into the forties in the evening, and everyone was freaking out on the news. It was hilarious to watch. <laughs> I wear a t-shirt in the in the forties. Right, right. It's fine. <laughs> uh that's 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 quite hilarious. It is. Uh, didn't, I, you didn't you didn't happen to uh see DJP while you were No, there. that that did not work out. I if I'd been thinking well ahead and planned better, I might have been able to, but various things conflicted, so that did not happen, sadly. Uh but I but I did learn there is a uh, a chunk of it's not in it's in Metro LA I don't think it's in Los Angeles proper where you, it is perfectly normal to see signs in um, Armenian like neon <laughs> signs in Armenian. Wait a minute, Armenian? That was not the language I was um, expecting to hear about. <laughs> nope, there's a large Armenian speaking population. Uh, sometimes immigrant groups just just. End up in the most random places. Yeah, I mean, LA sort of makes sense because <clears throat> the climate's kind of well. LA is is very diverse most of anyway. The time. It, it is very diverse anyway. It, yeah, it attracted a lot of different people. But I mean, like, there's a thing about there's Hmong in the Upper Midwest, and it's like, why would you come someplace so cold if you're from the tropics? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like, why did they come here? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's great. I mean, it means that it's interesting in Wisconsin because um, in order to be accessible, various kinds of government notices are typically in English, Spanish, and Hmong. <laughs> yes. Which I know nothing about, but it's it's nice to see. <laughs> I know that one one thing about the the, the there's apparently uh, a bee. In the Hmong romanization represents uh, the velar nasal. No, that represents a combination of tone and fine. So um, I forget how many tones Hmong has. And rather than use accent marks or numbers to mark tone, they used illegal coda consonants. Oh. <laughs> to mark various things. <laughs> That's a little insane. Yeah, it, it, it looks a bit funky. Compar- especially compared to how it sounds. But yes, they use, if your language does not have uh, coda stops, then they decided they would use those to mark tone. Oh, uh, wow. That's a little crazy. It is a little crazy. Uh, as someone who tried to conlang before we had anything but ASCII on our computers, I'm sympathetic to these things. Probably someone with only a typewriter. Yeah. Um, and, and no weird characters did this. So you get some of these weird romanizations that pop up during a period when you had typewriters. Um, and it was a pain to do anything sophisticated with them except just straight up text. Yeah. But anyway, that's, um, maybe sometime in the future we'll feature Hmong. Um, I, you can take Hmong classes at the university. So maybe I should hope so. <laughs> yeah. So, um, we'll see about that. But, uh, Right now, what we're talking about is we have a topic for you guys. This is 
maybe a little bit more of a meta topic. It's not so much helping people to construct languages or anything, but it's sort of a conlang uh, topic. Uh, we have zonal auxlang. So to boil it down, um, most of our listeners will be familiar with what an auxlang or an international auxiliary language is. It's um, a language that is basically developed to be used as a lingua franca. Think of Esperanto or Volpique or um, a number of other ones. But these zonal auxlangs are a little bit more specific than that. Rather than like what Esperanto was originally intended for to be a worldwide language, uh, zonal auxlangs basically are meant for sort of a particular region or a particular area and usually take languages, often they'll take languages from that particular area and sort of combine them in order to, to get the result. Right. Um, it, it's a little bit more like interlingua. Interlingua, I think, was meant to be still somewhat international, but it, 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 it's largely sort of this, this romance language. Well, yeah, if it's sort of a West European, Zonal Oxlang in the sense that an awful lot of English uh-huh. um, was also brought into consideration, which, you know, devastated the morphology system of <laughs> anything you might normally expect out of a Western European language. Once you add English, it's like, no, we're not going to do anything with our verbs. Um, <laughs> yeah, English English is is uh, very simplified. Right. And, and we decline to decline and, and that sort of stuff. So, um, right. So. A lot of the languages we're going to talk about today, even though many of them um, aspire to something approximating naturalism, sort of taking some average, if you will, of a particular language region or usually language families, um, a lot of them still do simplify things an awful lot. A lot of of certainly irregularities are chucked out the window, Um, but a lot of the this word that, you know, David hates so much, a lot of the morphology, a lot of the inflectional morphology thing, horrible things happening to nouns, verbs, and he adjectives. Has, it's he typically has no dry. problem with morphology, but he hates morphemes. <laughs> but that's, but, uh, that's, Mor- that's another topic. <laughs> that's a very subtle distinction that makes my brain itch. Um, <laughs> right. So we're speaking about the analysis of these languages. So he should be fine with morphemes and analysis. So, right. So even though normal Oxlangs, have universal aspirations, even though they might still be quite European. Certainly Esperanto and Volapük were both very uh, European. Um, the zonal oxlangs try to act as an, interla- an interlanguage between a regional group, typically of related languages. Um, the two big one, the two big tendencies we're going to talk about are European, and we I found one from Africa. If people know about these zonal oxlangs from other parts of the world, like an Asian would be fascinating. Um, yeah, that would uh, be interesting. It would be interesting. They may be out there, but I don't have, you know, I did not, I don't even know how to say, you know, zonal oxlang in Chinese. So it didn't occur to me to do a Chinese search on that subject. Oh, um, that would, even that, though that, that might, um, that might prove, um, fruitful. I, I don't think the, the whole international language type thing, the whole auxiliary language thing was as big in, Asia. I know that in Japan there are some Esperanto speakers, but other than that... Sure, sure. And uh, probably the Chinese at this point just expect everyone to speak Mandarin, <laughs> yes, um, yes. Which, which we're all going to do soon enough anyway. So, yeah, yeah that's true. That, but, um, yeah. Um, so, it's mostly European, but you have you have this one example from Africa, that's yeah. Afrihili. Afrihili, which is so cute. I like that language a lot. Um, and it makes me sad that it's hard to find more information about um, we've already mentioned interlingua. We can make an argument that that is sort of one that's been designed by a committee. Mm-hmm. Um, one could maybe make the argument that lingua franca nova, um, given its focus on the romance languages, could be thought of as a romance um, uh, zonal oxlang. Although I, I think it also has um, universal aspirations. I forget. Well, I mean, we have to kind of think about the the methodology versus the the um the actual aspirations, I think. It's it's very meta making this distinction between 
general Oxlangs and the zonal Oxlangs. Because, yeah, Esperanto is basically just a mishmash of European languages with, with its own, uh, uh, created grammar right. on top of that. So you could think of it as zonal in sort of the, the method of creating it, but its well, aspiration was universal. Yes, but I think for most of what we're talking about here is the aspiration matters a lot. Yeah. What are you trying to do? Um, and typically what it's trying to do is regional rather than universal. Yes. And that's important. I think that, I think the intent and the aspirations, the, the really significant distinction, because as we say, Esperanto is effectively a zonal oxlang in the sense that it is basically of European construction, although the morphology, <laughs> the morphology, <laughs> morphology, morphology, um, is, Kind of more agglutinating, frankly, in yeah. not a very European mold, but still the, a lot of the lexicon and the semantics are basically European. Mm-hmm. Um, so do we want to move on to the, the first set of these? Yeah. So you have, you have a, a number, uh, you have these sort of organized and sort of your first, your first category is a bunch of Germanic languages. Yep. The, or G- Germanic zonal oxlangs. They're not, Germanic languages per se, but they're based on Germanic languages. Right. Um, and starting in the 1800s, quite a few of these were produced uh-huh. and probably people are still producing them. Mm-hmm. Um, one that was invented in 1965 is called Euro Nord. Um, and it's based on English, Dutch, German, Norwegian, Danish, and Swedish. So Norwegian, Danish, and Swedish is effectively one branch and then German and Dutch, German and Dutch are another branch and then there's English. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just mentioned this because you can see an example of the language on Wikipedia. It's hard to get more detail. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's a nice example of one sort of pre-internet that you could look at. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit around in my list here, George. Then there's one called Teutonish, which reading about these days is kind of anxiety causing because there's lots of talk about Aryans and the Aryan race. Oh dear. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was invented, uh, pre barely, uh, pre Nazi. Um, and this one is interesting because the guy kept churning out books and I don't know who was publishing these books. I, I didn't have time to look into that. I'm wondering if he had some sort of, uh, independent source of wealth that let him do this. And he was very interested to have this language replace English and German. So this was a more modest goal. He was um, blending German as spoken in Germany and English. Okay. And he kept revising it and coming out with new books. Um, it would be really interesting to know, um, yeah, how all of his books kept getting published. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know. People, people publish some interesting things. So, Sure, but a publisher had to decide to do this and, you know, putting out a hardcover book, especially in, you know, the early 1900s is not exactly cheap. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. It's not, it's, it's not as, it wasn't as easy to publish things as it is now, but I don't know. He may have had his own money or something. So, uh, that's an interesting thing to look at. Um, obviously flipping through the book, it kind of gets, uh, gets, uh, away before you really see much linguistic material. So. Oh yeah, no, he's t- going on and on about why this is necessary and all that alarming talk about races. Um, he yeah. also created an inter-romance version of the language, um, mm-hmm. which was kind, which was, I, I don't know, kind of him, thoughtful, something. Um, honestly, looking at, so a, a bunch of his books are in archive.org. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll have a link to some of those. And looking at the romanization honestly makes me think of Yiddish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's interesting. Yeah, probably not the effect he was aiming at, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nonetheless. Um, and and he, only four of the books are on currently on archive.org, and there were at least twice as many that he published on this subject with various revisions. Um, so you can do it. Honestly, I think it would be interesting 
and, and maybe someone could do this, is just look into the history of this guy and find out what his deal was and what he was trying to accomplish. I mean, he says an awful lot about what he's trying to accomplish, but I'm still trying to figure out who on earth funded all these books. We could, we could, we could do, um, help us, help us research it. Maybe, maybe we'll feature this language at some point and go over the whole history of it. Yeah. It's, it's, it, I mean, it, it is very meta, but it is interesting. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It, it, it may be a little bit disturbing at points, but given, given some of the language, but, uh, right. Um, What's this, uh, Frankish? Frankish is, Frankish is fun. Um, the guy keeps churning out various kinds of, of these languages. Um, uh-huh. he's got one that's some Scandinavian thing. Uh, the reason I like, uh, Frankish is because he has a link to the grammar, um, which looks kind of nifty. It's well published in the sense it's nicely edited and it looks good. Um, and you can see nice long examples of everything that he's trying to do. Um, so you have a grammar mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. And this brings up the interesting point to me about the, uh, a lot of these, uh, Germanic oxlangs. I just love to see what they decide to do with a definite article. Oh, really? Um, it's, it's quite different in different Germanic languages, isn't it? Right. Most of them, Somebody early had the idea that we're just going to turn it into duh, D-E, um, or however you, your language is going to pronounce that. And that appears to be how Frankish went and appears to be how lots of them go. Uh-huh. Um, so, yes. So take out any of the gender marking or case marking that yes. occurs in German. And yes. Uh, makes sense. Oh, what a nice sentence. Ihata arm folk. You hate poor people. <laughs> the man and sing aloud. Men are singing loudly. So good. There's Hahim melted here mother. Has he met her mother? <laughs> An important question. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. Pr- I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. What a hilarious sentence. Give me dine. Give me Dean Clayton. Give me your clothes. <laughs> Don't be so stupid. Yeah, so the, I like the example sentences. That's entertaining. You will fly to Singapore. Yeah, we could we could we could mine some of these for uh, features in the future, but we're just kind of going over a big chunk of them now. Yeah, I don't know um, how often we need to talk about these. And all of the Germanic things you get right, we're going to have a nice long section on your modal verbs, all of that stuff that we all recognize um, if we've ever. <laughs> I'd be interesting to see do if any of these have um actually kept things like strong and weak verbs and stuff. Yes, if you in fact look on page 21 of the Frankish grammar, um he does in fact include the strong verbs. So, uh let's find one that I have some small chance of pronouncing properly. So the word the verb to bind class 3 is binde for infinitive and present presumably. Bond is the stem for pass, and bonden is the perfect stem. Drinke, drunk, drunken, finde, fand, fonden, you know, the sort of things you expect. <laughs> oh, nice. Stinke, stunk, stonken, for to stink. That's useful. Um, and that's another question is, when you do one of these languages, how much do you try to simplify it to accommodate a lot of different learners? Mm-hmm. Some simplify a great deal. And some don't simplify much at all. And Frankish, as we see here, is one that, that decided not to simplify a whole, whole much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a really probably the best known among your average conlanger is going to be Volksbrock, which is an ongoing and frankly rather chaotic project. It started in 1999. Um, the mail and most of the, um, activity happens on a mailing list and that mailing list is still going strong. Although it looks like the peak of interest and discussion and development was in 2005. Yeah, well, some of these things kind of don't get too far. Right. This one is still going. And there are, in fact, two different wiki books about learning Volkssprache, one in English and one in German. Oh, okay. And the German one's more up to date, apparently. But the, the thing is, it's very chaotic in the sense that different people have different ideas. So everyone has their own private idiolect of Volkssprache is the impression I get. Mm-hmm. Which may or may not be fatal for mutual comprehension. Again, it depends on what your goal is. Yeah, it, it depends on how things are going. 
Um, why don't we move on um, and talk about there's an impressive list here of uh, Slavic uh, Zonalox lines. And I love these. I don't know why, but I love them. First of all, the Slavic languages are have a reasonably high degree of mutual um, comprehensibility anyway, especially written, I'm guessing. Um, so going back to the 1600s, it has occurred to people that they should come up with some sort of medium, either the mode or the median of, of all of the Slavic languages and use that so that all the Slavs can communicate. Um, one could even make an argument that Old Church Slavonic, which was <laughs> invented long before the 1600s, I think that came out of the 800s, um, actually let me verify that, um, is at the very least, it's a Kunstsprache. It is a mix of various um, features of different Slavic languages. Oh, interesting. Um, uh, yes, in the 800s um, is mm-hmm. when all church Slavonic was sort of come together and often provides the basis for these modern um, Z- uh, Slavic zonal oxlangs. So there are various approaches. One diagnostic for these languages is how much undigested Russian is in it. Mm-hmm. Some have uh, quite a lot of Russian since it is by far the largest of the Slavic languages. Yeah, Russian Russian has a lot of power in the yes. Slavic sphere. So Lots of speakers, lots of tanks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other approach um, involves starting with Old Church Slavonic and doing things to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the third way, sort of generally, is to take a representative list of the different branches of the Slavic families and somehow average out the vocabulary mm-hmm. and, and, and go that way. Um, probably the earliest in the Internet era Slavic Oxlang is called Slovio, and it has a, a nice long and contentious history. It is basically a Slavic Esperanto. So you have a Slavic, effectively Russian, vocabulary roots with uh, Esperanto mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy who invents it, uh, who invented it, has uh, a certain hostility to all subsequent um, schemes like this. He thinks they're all copying him, and he gets cranky about it. Um, I don't know how many people are actually partisans of Slovio at this point. He has a very ancient. Uh, like late nineties web design <laughs> website for the language. Yeah, I see that, and it's weird. Um, yeah, it's a little. He has stuff in English as well as I guess in Slovio, both in Roman and Cyrillic. And that's another thing that a lot of these um, Slavic oxlangs do is they have multiple orthographies to accommodate different groups. Yes, of course. Um, I think we should all start using Legolitic again. Okay. <laughs> um, people people who like writing systems should look up Glagolitic. It was one of the first alphabets that ever entranced me. Um, it's a little bit unwieldy, frankly, but I think it looks cool. <laughs> uh, I will try to look that up later. Yeah. Um, looking at this Slovio, it's like he's he, he's in typical Oxlanger fashion. He's he's kind of. Um, hostile to other he talks about um esperanto he says while esperanto is a simple language its main problem is the fact that it's made up of too many unrelated languages and thus if you speak esperanto no one will understand you only other esperantists (laughs) right as as if really that's a problem i guess i guess um i maybe he has more comprehensibility with other Slavic languages with Slovio, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, the impression I get from other people, and again, these are people um, who are partisans of other inter-Slavic languages, um, say because of the sort of schematic grammar, of Esperanto-like grammar that is slunk, plunked down on Slovio, it makes it quite difficult to follow. Especially mm-hmm. the derivational stuff um, conceals a lot. conceals more than it reveals. Yeah. Um, we have... Also, um, uh, we're going to recommend, um, uh, Jan van Steinbergen, yes. uh, did a presentation on, is it on just these Slavic oxlangs in general or? No, he, he, he talks about a number of things, but he's talking about a particular inter-Slavic project we're about to get to. 
mm-hmm. um, is, is mostly a thing. He also has an enormous annotated list of all of these inter-Slavic languages, which is great. Yeah, we have So it's that. a nice documentary history of these. I really wish someone would do the same thing for German or the German zonal ox legs because I couldn't find one. Yeah, that would that would be helpful. Just as um, just just as a a point of intellectual history, it'd be interesting to see that list as well. Yeah. There, there is a there's a, a better list actually on the Frath Wiki of these various Germanic yeah. zonal. It's Oxlen. it's surprising not to see more romance because I can think of IALs a lot of IALs that are based on romance, but I think they're often are romance based IALs, right? But I think they're mostly sort of universalist things like Latin, Latino sin afflicione and uh, lingua franca nova and right. all that sort of thing. Right, right. Um, so, where is the next one? So there's, um, there have been various projects that we said. We have some that start with an average sort of Slavic features and simplify it to something. And there are others that take Ulster Slavonic and try to regularize that. Mm-hmm. And both of these processes result in languages that look remarkably similar, mm-hmm. which is probably not terribly surprising. And various projects, um, two big projects in particular, have merged into what gets called inter-Slavic. And I think that the, the word inter-Slavic is modeled on interlingua, that name. Hmm. Um, and there, I think there are two main things at this point, and they kind of claim to share um, vocabulary. They have their own website that publishes news, um, and it's and it's yet another la- website that has everything in English and two variants of Inter-Slavic. Two variants of Inter-Slavic, and um, which they got, they which got the Chrome ch- thinks is Russian. By the way, <laughs> uh, again, not surprising. Um, <laughs> what's entertaining is they've gotten grants from various arms of what looks like the Czech government to support some of this work. Really? And I think, again, the idea is quite like interlingua. The idea is to make certain kinds of research available in this interslavic, then that could be legible to <sighs> educated, educated Slavic speaking peoples throughout the, the Slavic zone. Ah, interesting. Um, you can get a published book on Neo-Slavonic. There's also a web tutorial. Um, if you go to the Google Books site, you can get the Neo-Slavonic tutorial downloaded as a big PDF. Um, and unfortunately, he has to spend some time at the beginning of the book taking pot shops at Esperanto, which always makes me crabby when you expect this of <laughs> Oxlangers, even zonal Oxlangers. But uh, every single one of them is going to do that. Almost. Um, it's the biggest, the the biggest one in the room. It is the biggest one in the room. Everyone has to, yeah. Um, but it's a very, it's, it's a really good grammar. It describes a lot of stuff. I sort of wish there were more, uh, ex- not examples. I wish there were more like homework. I wish there were more example sentences and things to translate at the end of each of these lessons. Again, I am a native speaker of English, and I don't. I tried to learn Russian once when I was a kid, but I, I really didn't very much. So probably for a speaker of a Slavic language, assimilating all of this stuff is very easy without the need for practice. But for the rest of us who might find it just cute to learn one of these languages, um, it's a little bit harder. Um, and we do have a link. Oh, I already said this. We have a link to of uh, Jan von Steinbergen talking about the sort of inter-Slavic in relation to other sorts of philosophical questions about how you classify invented languages. Mm-hmm. Um, while we were doing this, I'd forgotten about another kind of zonal oxlang, um, which has a name I can't pronounce. <laughs> Can you paste it in the doc here? I just did. Um, it calls it, we'll go with the long name, which is modern Indo-European. Oh, yes. Yes. I've heard it is of an this. attempt to revive Indo-European. Across the entire Indo-European speaking zone, apparently. Um, it has a huge website, large, large documents. Um, Does it ever tell you how to pronounce this name? D-N-G-H-U. Yes, it's supposed to be a syllabic N, so it should be Dungu. 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 Yeah. That's an aspirated? Yes, a voice aspirate, which yeah. is 
be some breathy voice thing. But anyway, yes. Yeah, the the those one of those that um we know was around in in, in Indo-European, but why they chose that because those are kind of hard to pronounce. Yes, yes, <laughs> it is very difficult to pronounce this. Dungu. Right. But so there, I would be very interested. I, I don't know a whole lot about in in a link, European history, but I know like a few things, and I'd be interested into like, um, what did they do with the laryngeals and stuff? Right. And, uh, you know, I think things I think, that we just don't know. I think they ditched them. I forget. Um, it's <laughs> actually sort of interesting if you want a summary of some idea of reasonably current scholarship about what Proto-Indo-European looked like, mm-hmm. maybe as a starting point for some fun of your own, this is a really good resource for that. Yeah. You know, just the information is, I mean, you without getting into the weirdness of this person or person's scheme. So, like, exotic. They, re- they, they really want this, this to be revived over the entire Indo-European sphere from, from... The British Isles all the way to, uh, well, from the Americas all the way to, uh, India. Evidently. That would be a little crazy. <laughs> it would be a little crazy. And we'd have lots of people who are very, very angry because many Oxlangs is, you know, wants to be easy to learn. But this one makes no effort to be easy to learn because the grammar of the Proto European is quite complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so is the pronunciation. And they're quite merciless. Yes. <laughs> they just they just kind of okay, this is what we have reconstructed, so. And that's what we're going to use. Yeah. Um so it's kind of fun. I they I find navigating the website frankly a little exasperating sometimes, but it's it's worth it to to dig into the information if you're interested in that. Yeah, it's uh it's like a wiki style, but uh kind of but has some issues. <laughs> it does have some sty- some usability stuff. Anyway, so I that's I just I don't have much more to say about that. I just remembered that it's some it's something. Oh, the that. grammar is a book. It is a book. Uh, um, it's you, jo- you, can, you can buy it or download it. Or download the huge PDF. Um, is there a Kindle version for free? There is. There's an EPUB, but whatever. We can worry about formats. Many formats are made available. They really. Whoever is behind this is very diligent and industrious. Uh, they really they they do want to to uh, push it they really do. hard. They really do. So that's that's an interesting thing. Um, we have and then we have here Afrihili. Afrihili again uh, invented in the late sixties, early seventies by a Ghanaian historian. Ghanaian. Uh, Yes. People from Ghana. Yes. Yes. He's from Ghana. Ghanaian is one pronunciation of that word. Uh, K.A. Kumi Atobra. Um, apparently he was taking a trip across the Straits of Dover and decided that, I don't know what, what, what about that? Maybe he was hearing English and French being spoken and he decided that Africa needed a unifying language. And so he made one. Um, what strikes me actually is that, um, so, Afrihili is very heavily influenced by Swahili, right? It sure looks like it, yeah. Um, but Swahili is like already almost like a pure lingua franca. There's not that many native speakers. It's, it's mostly used as lingua franca around certain parts of Africa. Right, right. That's a very good point, And I don't know why he didn't do that. Um, it's, I think it's likely that there, is stuff from Akan languages and also Ewe mm-hmm. uh, in the language, which I think is his native language. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but it's like sweet Swahili without the very complicated class system. Um, yeah, I guess I guess he he wanted to simplify Swahili partly, even more, also, and also um, bring brought in some English stuff in it. It does seem that English semantics get smuggled in various ways. So. Just from an orthography standpoint, I love it because it includes the both high and low mid vowels. So a and a and o and a, and those are indicate and the the low ones are indicated with the little epsilon and the little backward c. Yeah, 
Well, the IPA values. Yeah, the IPA for, for those, which, you know, screams, this is an African language. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was cute. Um, but the verb system just looks like he'd been tortured a lot in English. So you have everything you expect of an English verb. You have a, a present, a present progressive, a present habitual future. And he just, it's very schematic and very English, including things like a perfect continuous. Yes. Which just, uh, so English. I don't know. I don't know if that's, that's really necessary. <laughs> uh, right. Um, the, the one thing that's nifty, he's got a past marker and then a past consecutive, which basically just means and then. So you, huh. you can use the normal past and then subsequent, subsequent events use the, the past consecutive. Um, and then the conditionals and the subjunctives, um, which are a little bit less Englishy. To me, the most, Interesting part is just the derivational system mm-hmm. because it's definitely not English. And I would love to know where all of these things are coming from. Yeah. For example, there's a suffix tile, which means never to do again. So that the verb sanawi needs to get drunk, but sanawi tile means never to get drunk again, which seems that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I still, it's very interesting that he felt the need for this, but was familiar with Swahili still, because, because I just, I just think about it and I remember from the book, The Last Lingua Franca, that, um, he estimated like something like 90% of the use of Swahili is as a lingua franca. So they kind of already have it, but then people make the universalist, um, the the universalist um uh oxlangs even though english has basically taken that role all, all over the world so um i understand you know there is still the the impulse to improve or to make something that is truly neutral or something right like that. right yeah and that's the you know the big thing trying to pick something that's truly neutral um uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, he might have had objections to Swahili for some reason. Not least of which, it is kind of complicated. You have to learn the class system and all of that. Yeah. So. Um, and it's really only used in most strongly in West Central Africa. It doesn't extend very far north or south. Yeah, it's it's only a, a, a small part of Africa, so he may be trying to unite more people. Right. But uh, that's it's very interesting. Um. I don't know. We don't really have any other examples here, though. I think we probably don't have an exhaustive list here just because we oh, have good Lord, no. No, no, limitations no, no, no. on how much we can research and how much we can talk about. But right. I would uh, encourage readers to um, give us more examples of these things. because they're Yeah, no, that'd be nice in the comments to hear about yeah. more. I am especially interested in ones that come from places other than Europe. Yeah, if you if you know of... These zonal oxlangs in in Asia, or more of them in Africa, or um, probably not going to find any in the Americas because uh, that's that would be a little odd. Right. Um, well, um, I have to admit that uh, uh, I've sometimes thought that the only place that a um, oxlang is likely to be really embraced would be among. Uh, Native American and First Nations groups in the United States and Canada. Really? Because right now, intertribal business is conducted in English, possibly in French and parts of Canada. But if they wanted to get away from that, they would have to pick something. Because I can tell you now that even though there are some of these languages that are very strong and in theory could be used for this purpose, um, I think your average Hopi would walk across the entirety of the continent and drink a bucket of warm spit before they would consent to speak Navajo. Well, I mean, think of, think about it. The, the, none of those languages are currently used really as a, a lingua franca anywhere. Right. Well, and, we, we, we had some places that looks like lingua francas were developed. There was some, uh, uh, historically, yeah. yeah historically, there were, there were trade Chin- languages and stuff. Yeah. Chinook, Chinook jargon. As it's, yeah. Um, but, like currently there's none that are that right. way. They're all, they're all very small languages that are all very intensely identified with a, a particular ethnic group. Right. So you'd have to, you would, you would maybe have to do an Oxlang if they, if they wanted to go that, that way. 
Yeah, I've sometimes thought about this, but a zonal ox lang for all of North America would be almost impossible because there are such radically different language families. It's, it's extremely diverse. It's so extremely it'd be, diverse. It'd be it'd be a little tricky because Two, there's there's lots of different systems. Yes, at least two hundred and fifty different distinct languages in all of North America, and multiple language families. Yes, yeah, and many language thing. families. Yeah. Um, uh, South America and and even like Mexico, they could revive uh, Nahuatl and standardize well, it. In fact, they're they're trying to standardize Nahuatl. I think they are because that, that's still various dialects constitute several million speakers. Yes, um, it's just that um, they've been isolated from each other for so long that they're starting to drift apart into different languages, and yeah, the yeah. the Mayan languages are drifting have drifted apart pretty. Yeah. Thoroughly. I think they were already drifted apart. Yeah. Um, if you made one for the Andes Mountains, you could easily revive Quechua for that. Widely used already. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, two, uh, the various languages of the Tupi, is it the Tupi family? Oh, yeah. Tupi was used um, throughout the I wonder. The I wonder how much, because Guarani is still, it actually has co-official status in Paraguay. Guarani, yes. I think it is the only native language apart from maybe West Greenlandic that has people of primarily European extraction learning it. Yeah, it's, it's, um, from what I understand in Paraguay, um, bilingualism in, uh, Spanish and Guarani is very, very common and the population is like 90% mestizo. So, right. Well, then they don't need a zonal oxygen because they're set. Yeah, they're they're fine right in that country. <laughs> right. So I mean, that's a, that's an interesting thing. Uh, also, like it, it's hard to imagine like an Australian zonal oxlang getting together because those groups are also still very small groups with many different languages. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how commonly it would be interesting. What would be interesting actually is. Um, an Austronesian zonal oxlang. Oh my god! The problem is, is you have things like um, <laughs> Tagalog on the one hand, which still has uh, the Austronesian alignment, and then way off at the other end, you get Hawaii, which has completely destroyed that system for something, frankly, that is more comprehensible to me. Um, so that w- you'd get something that looked an awful lot like a Polynesian language, I think. Yeah, it, it would be it. It would be very interesting. Well, I mean, uh, in some uh, sense, Indonesian is already fulfilling this role. Yeah, Indo- Indonesian is 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 to to some extent, though Indonesian is really just Malay. So yeah, Malay with stuff. It's 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 a different standard of Malay. Yeah. Um. And and like Swahili, the number of people who speak it natively versus who use it in their day to day business life is quite strikingly different. Hmm. Yeah. It's it's hard to think of like. There's there's just a whole lot of stuff to deal with. Like I mean, Tagalog, it has a certain cachet like on the street in the Philippines, but people use English for for government and uh, uh, academic scholarship and everything. Yeah, things like that. So uh, the but um, in any case. I don't think none of this really stops people from p- proposing these. So I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if some of these things are around. Yeah, uh, I just haven't, I haven't heard about them. In some sense, it would be really difficult where you have very different language families sitting next to each other and attempting to unite that in some way. All of the ones we've been discussing so far are things that are effectively, with the possible exception of Afrahili, they are for the most part merging related languages. Yeah. Sometimes quite closely related languages. Although sometimes, uh, for, for some of them, like the, the modern Indo-European is going a little bit out there in trying to unite a, a gigantic super family. So. Right. Right. I don't know. It would be very interesting to see, see ones from Asia, from, ones from Africa, so ones from other parts of the world, uh, and see sort of how the philosophy is different too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I think maybe we should close this episode out with, uh, an email. I've been sitting for, on this email for too long. Uh, uh, I, I want to say 
We don't really have like a backlog of emails. It's just that some of them I feel like saving sometimes for an ep for, to put in top of an episode. And then later on I look at it and I'm like, why was I just sitting on that one? Mm. So I may, I may, uh, uh, unless we get a lot more emails and we, we do, I do like the emails, conlanger at gmail.com. Um, I may be going back to some of these ones that I was saving and then realize, because I'm realizing, you know, it may just be good to just read this. So this one says, dear George, Mike, and DJP at all. So that tells you pretty much exactly when that came. <laughs> uh, it's from Robert. Uh, he says, perhaps it's not a topic worthy of an entire episode, but I thought I'd ask, and maybe sometime in, in feedback, you'll, Tell me a better way to go about learning. Can you guys do an episode on tone? I've studied English, German, French, Czech, Japanese, and Korean. I think he put English in parentheses, so I presume it's native, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, so tone has never come up. I can almost hear them, but I can never produce them with any degree of fluency. There are a few sounds that I don't think I am articulating correctly, e.g., uh, pharyngealization, so I never include them in my conlangs. The same is true with tone. I remember William repeating, su- repeatedly suggested we write a two-tone language, but I couldn't find any examples to listen to online. Can you guys maybe do a practicum? Thanks for making a great show so regularly. George is a good Sergeant York. That's a joke that David made at one point. <laughs> um, so... In terms, so there's two questions here. One is us doing an episode about tone. Second of all, how on earth do you learn to produce them and recognize them? Yes. I think, I think we could easily do an entire episode on tone. Yeah. Um, especially if we so go look for that in the future. Yeah. If we, if we go into different, uh, types of tone systems, different types of tone systems, tone genesis, we can have lots of fun. Yeah. Um, um as far as learning them, uh, I really think a, a big thing to do is to just start learning a tonal language and get lots of practice. Yep. Um, it's very, very easy to find, uh, resources to learn Mandarin Chinese. Um, and, but you don't have to go that way. You can go with, uh, probably reasonably accessible to learn Cantonese or Thai or Vietnamese. Um, just sort of depends on what's available for you and what what's what's interesting to you. Um, if you don't want to do the full contour tone systems, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of languages that have the two or three tone systems that are right. that might be a little bit easier for you to uh, understand. There are some nice examples. So Navajo has a two tone system, and on YouTube there are some videos if you search on Navajo language where people do things like give the weather report in Navajo and then have the text up on the screen. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Well, um, um and put that in I, the, uh, sure. Go ahead and put that in the show notes and I will put that as a link after his email. And another good language, and I don't know if there's any good, um, references for this is Yoruba is the classic example of a three tone system, but I have had less good luck trying to find information about Yoruba online. Yeah, that's why I was suggesting Chinese, not so much because I like Chinese and, and all that, but everybody's trying to learn Chinese right now. Yeah. And everybody on the internet is making Chinese lessons either free or uh, for pay. So it's very easy to find resources to learn it. So it it just sort of depends on where you want to uh, go with things. Yeah. Um. And yeah, unfortunately for producing tone correctly, that's your own. And probably for any of these phonetics things, you just have yeah. to get a little deeper into maybe a language you're not interested necessarily in learning, but provides a gateway to learning about that. No, so if I mean, you want to learn, if you want to learn pharyngealization, you're stuck learning Arabic. Yeah, it's, it, that's true. I mean, we could tell you the stuff. And when we do, uh, I think we'll save this when we do a tone episode. I feel like we've done a tone episode, but maybe we've just talked about it in, in context of like the super segmentals. I think it was super segmentals. Um, we'll, we'll t- talk about like the five, 
the five levels and all that stuff so that you can, that might give you a little more information on, on how tone works, at least the, the way, uh, phonologists deal with it, analyzing it. And that might help you a little bit with recognizing them. It's just, yeah. but really, uh, it just takes a while to learn how to internalize it and listen to it and listening to uh, I think listening to the tonal systems of different languages is can be a little bit different because um although there is like this particular like formula that tones followed with the five levels of um of uh pitch um I think sometimes depending on the tone system that space may actually be wider or narrower so yeah, you never know how wide that, that interval is going to be, and that is often quite distinct from language to language. Yes. I, I just, like, um, I've noticed that Mandarin speakers and Cantonese speakers have different... Cantonese speakers have, like, a wider range of pitches that they use than... They have to. They have so many tone distinctions. Yeah. Mandarin, you actually don't need the uh, actual relative pitches as much because the contours tell you all the information about the tone. So. Right, right. Um, but we'll talk more in depth about that in uh, a full episode. That's a really good suggestion. And uh, not enough conlangers do tonal languages. I think uh, people are kind of afraid of it because it it's, it is different from the languages that most conlangers are familiar with or the languages yep. that most conlangers speak. So. Yep. Uh, I, I overuse them, but that's just because I was exposed. First of all, I'd studied Mandarin Chinese for several years, and then I learned Ladan, which is a tongue language as well. So. Yeah. Well, he, he, this guy has studied Japanese, so he at least knows pitch accent. Pitch accent, but then... That, yeah. that might help you a little bit. I don't know. It's a little bit different. Uh, does Korean have pitch accent too? I have no idea what Korean's accent system or pitch system or yeah, accent system is like. Uh, I don't know. Yep. Uh, so anyway, that does it for this episode. I'm going to ask William, you're the only one here. Do you have any final words of wisdom? No wisdom for me today. Oh, uh, so sad. Anyway, <laughs> I'm going to say happy conlang. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a Conlang or Natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our Contribute page for details. Web space for Conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device. 